Hello and welcome to Lecture 6A of MGI 514, Project Management Leadership. My name is Brenton Birchmore and we're about to have a quick look at project integration. Now when we look at project integration, we are in effect looking at what makes something a project? What makes it something that needs to be managed? And in this, we're looking at the nature of planning. So let's dig a bit deeper on what we mean and what is the core purpose behind planning, planning anything at all. In its purest sense, planning is pre-decision making. It is making decisions or part of decisions in advance. In a personal sense, planning is practice at thinking through the decisions. So for small things that we might plan for ourselves, we might plan a discussion that we're about to have. We will think through in advance the decisions that we might need to make during our discussion about what we might say and how we might respond to certain things. That might be our planning for something. So in that case, it's practice of thinking through all of the various options. But what else is planning in a more practical sense? Well, in a project sense, planning is often about finding out those decisions or which decisions need to be made ahead of time or before other decisions. Therefore, it's often about the prioritization of decisions, what decisions need to be made, and then the results of those decisions might then influence other subsequent decisions that depend upon them. So therefore, planning in a project context is a lot about understanding the points of interconnect, the dependencies, the interrelationship between all of the various decisions. And as we've said before, we can often think of a project as being nothing more than a billion decisions that all have to be made reasonably well. And one of the most important aspects of those decisions is the sequencing, the dependencies, or in other words, the integration of those decisions working harmoniously and cohesively together for a superior large-scale result. So this is about being clear that A comes before B and B comes before C and that DEF spells DEF. So when we talk about project integration, it sounds like a broad sweeping statement of, well, let's just you know bring it all together and make sure it works. Well, there are some slightly more scientific elements to exactly how integration functions. So we're talking about the dependencies, the connections, etc. Now, in any typical project, dependencies can be quite complex. Knowing what will affect what and what should affect something or what shouldn't affect something, what are the forces at work that are going to influence other things? This means that we need to understand everything from, first of all, a fairly high level. We need to understand all that must be done and all that it will take to accomplish that. So it begins with the helicopter project view. And it does need a lot of holistic data to work with. But it also needs expertise, it needs experience, but most importantly, a proactive intention to find and understand the points of interconnect and the forces that they apply to everything. Expertise and experience are things that we can outsource. As a project leader, we can bring in or have involved those experiences and expertise that we need from other sources. We can organize, collate, and coordinate those. But what we must bring is that proactive intent to find all the points of interconnect, or to make sure that somebody 
finds all those points of interconnect and influence and what decisions are going to affect what other decisions. So you could say that all these points of integration are what makes a project into a project. Or more specifically, these points of integration are what make a project something that has to be managed. It can't just barrel forward like a snowball, progressively making the decisions that come along as and when we need to. That's a little bit more like operations, where we move forward and the decisions that we need to make, most of them, tend to arise as and when they need to. Projects can't do that. So one of the crucial components in understanding integration and planning is the process of decomposition. Now, this is the process of the work breakdown structure. It's the idea of saying, well, let's look at the entirety of what needs to be done and break these large-scale, hard-to-get-our-head-around ideas into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces until we get bite-sized chunks that we can actually begin to measure in terms of time and in terms of cost. That's the technical description of decomposition and, and work breakdown structure. So we take our scope and break it down into comprehensible pieces. Now, the big issue with breaking something up is that the point of our project is actually putting it together. Breaking it up is the reversal of that process. It's like when we take a jigsaw puzzle out of the box. We've got to put it together. That's what we're actually here to do. So our project is often there to accomplish the reversal of the decomposition. That's actually the goal. So being clear on how that decomposition has taken place, being clear on what connects to what, what depends on what, what follows what, is a crucial part of knowing how we're going to recompose all of these individual things that we've now broken up into small measurable things. How do we recompose those into something that is actually delivering capability? A lot of projects do tend to fail or at least struggle during the work breakdown process. Now, one of the obvious ways that they can struggle is because something simply gets forgotten, uh, lost, or overlooked. We simply miss something in the breakdown structure. That's a little less likely. What's actually more common is what we lose, miss out, or often fail to notice is the glue that connects these components back together again. So it's not usually a component of the breakdown that we lose. But it's something that links these components together. And this is the basis of the point of integration. For example, we can't build a house just by having four walls and a roof. Those walls need to connect to each other at the corners. The roof must also attach to the walls. And these are the most or the more common forgotten points of interconnect inside projects. And this is the point of integration. So as a project leader, one of the things that we need to do, not just in the work breakdown structure process, but at all stages of the project, we need to be a proactive champion of all of the needs of integration, of all of the disparate things in our project. Because we've often broken things up to enable them to be completed. Individual parcels of work are often handed out or allocated to different teams, different people, sometimes even different companies. But bringing these together so that the sum of the parts adds up to something even greater 
That's the role of project leadership. Another thing we need to think about when looking at integrating projects and we look at our breaking the project apart and how is it going to go back together, not everything in our work breakdown structure is exact. Sometimes we're working with estimates. What we have there is essentially an inaccuracy an acceptance or an awareness that we're not able to predict with 100% accuracy in advance what something is going to take, what it's going to require, what it's going to need, or how it's going to come out. Now, we know that estimates exist. We are familiar with them. We work with them a lot in project management. But there is a point at which an estimate becomes an assumption. And these two are very different things. The assumption is where an estimate can become dangerous. So to clarify, an estimate is merely an acceptance or an awareness of a variation or tolerance for accuracy on information that we're using. An assumption is when that estimate is then relied upon for a decision without full regard to its variance or its possible variance. So let's explain this with an example. If we say some piece of work in our project is likely to take somewhere between four and six days, and we estimate that it'll probably take five, according to our expert, whom we trust. Now, if we schedule the next event on the sixth day, we're making an assumption that it will actually only take five days, and not the full six that it could possibly take. So that assumption, then, becomes relevant in our planning. But if we delay that next event until day seven, then we don't have an assumption in play because we have allowed for the full extent of the variance in our estimate. The fact that it is only an estimate is no longer an impact or no longer relevant on our project integration. So when we have assumptions, out of our assumptions comes risk planning. Because what if we're wrong? What if it does take six days? What are all the things that are going to be affected by this? What are all the points of integration that come from that assumption? So thus, every assumption that we allow for in our planning also creates a risk that we must also allow for in some way. Now, that doesn't mean that every risk has to be dealt with. Some risks we accept, but we must accept them or be planning to accept them with a full understanding of their consequences on our project. And one of the things that is often overlooked in project leadership when it comes to assumption-based risks is the full extent of impact that a particular thing might have. That if something gets pushed back a day in one area, we need to know and be clear what the risk describes as all of the possible repercussions and impacts, all of the points of interconnection, all of the integration elements that that realized that risk could affect. So it's precisely because everything is interconnected, everything is integrated, that we need to follow these things up and deal with them as a complete possible picture. One of the most important questions we have to keep asking is, what else will this affect? When we're talking about planning, as we did in the beginning, we're also talking about plans. Now, there is a difference between planning and plans. Within a personal context, planning can be highly useful as it gives us a degree of preparedness for the thought processes necessary to make a decision, which we discussed at the beginning. But a plan 
is an entirely different thing with an entirely different purpose. The primary purpose of a plan is not so that necessarily we, the individual, can remember the decisions we made in advance. It's for sharing those decisions. So plans, therefore, must share the knowledge of what are the dependencies, what are the points of interconnect, what are the points of integration that are relevant. And if a plan is going to share that degree of understanding, it's sharing the nature of integration of a project. So therefore, the language, the context, the terminology, the way in which that understanding of that plan is shared amongst its audience becomes highly important. And this is where it can be a little different, depending on what our audience is for our plan. Part of that common language begins within the scope. The scope being that statement of all the work and only the work that's going to be done in this project. This part of plan sharing is generally those or for those who are contributing to project delivery. These are the people who are part of the creation, the development, the delivery team who are building or involved with building this ultimate beast that our project is going to produce. But there's another function of planning, there's another kind of plan that is often to do with project recipients who are those stakeholders who are dependent or depending upon the outcomes of our project. Now for them, that kind of plan is a lot more about expectations. It's a lot more about what will or what should happen, what shouldn't happen, and why or why not. And that kind of plan still has a great degree of emphasis on integration. An understanding for those recipients of the project to know that if these risks materialize, then there will be these types of repercussions on things. And if it's used as an expectation management tool, then it needs to do so from a point of view of managing the entire integration because one domino that falls over in one place in our project can then have a wide range of repercussions which can trigger a wide range of either broken or reset expectations. And whether they're broken expectations or reset expectations will depend a lot on the extent of our understanding of the full degree of repercussions and integration of any individual thing within our project. This is the end of lecture 6a. Hello and welcome to lecture 6b of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Brendan Birchmore and this discussion is all about leading project scope. So, scope. We know already that scope is a pretty important thing in project management. But just how important is it really? Well, there are those who would probably say that it could be the most important thing. But what we'll focus on here is about how a project leader needs to think about scope to have that do its job. To do that, we must first be clear on what exactly is the job or the role of scope in our project. In the simplest sense, scope is merely a written and approved statement of what we will do. So scope is work. Scope is activity. Scope is effort. Scope is things that have to happen. It's different in that sense from other things like project goals, project definition, project charter. 
although they're all related into each other because they're all stem from each other. Scope is about action. It's defined as all of the work and only the work needed to deliver the project goals. So it's the thing that all of the project team, the project workers, are waiting for. Because until they have a scope, they can't do any work. Because scope is the work. But for a project leader, scope is a vital tool for the success of the project. Or moreover, scope is often a measure of our success. How well we can deliver the scope, how well we can work with the scope, our relationship with our scope over the life of the project is often the clearest and most accurate barometer of our likely success at the end of our project. So scope is what the resources will apply themselves to. Scope therefore defines the expenditure and that expenditure yields the result. There's a key difference here. Scope does not define the outcome as much as it defines the investment. So scope is the investment statement. It's the expense statement. It's about the outflow of energy and the results that should come from that expenditure of energy. So because scope is effort, scope is expense, it's about, well, we will do this and then we'll do this uh, and then we'll do that, etc. In doing this, there are a couple of points where scope and our relationship with scope can obviously go wrong. The first is in the creation of the scope, and the second is in the execution of that scope. So let's first look at the creation element of scope. This is the initial planning phase of dealing with scope. So creation failure of scope usually lies within the work breakdown structure, the decomposition phase, the breaking down of the decisions of what we need to do. What will it take to achieve these things? And through that work breakdown process, mistakes can happen, things can be overlooked, problems can occur. This is where our risks lie, where scope might fail us or scope might become weak if this phase isn't done properly. But this is largely an initial planning phase. And when it fails up front, sometimes it's because the expertise that was applied was lacking during the decomposition. Something was incorrect, something was poorly thought through, and as a result of that, the scope might not be complete. Some work or activity was overlooked, and if it doesn't get done, we might have a problem with our project. But sometimes initial scope failure, scope creation failure, occurs because our integration was lacking or was weak. And the scope might therefore be complete. It might have everything on the list, but it might not be sequenced correctly. The dependencies might not work out. Something might get done or be scheduled to happen too late or not to the right specifications for something else that depends upon it, etc. So initial scope failure can either be something wrong or missing due to expertise or due to integration. Now when you're talking about initial scope creation, this is these problems are more likely when we're under time pressure to get started, to begin work or at least to look busy. 
Now, in some projects, it's possible to get some work underway on early scope items, some of the low-risk, easily resolved scope activity, whilst we might then continue to build and refine the remainder of our scope in enough detail. Now, this, in some cases, can be dangerous, but it can also be quite workable, and it depends on the project. But sometimes, scope failure comes not from its creation phase, but it comes from the execution phase. And there, it comes from the scope's interpretation. It's about how it's understood by those who use it or who work with it to create results. So, which do we think is more likely? Which kind of scope failure or problem is more likely to happen? Well, scope design, the initial scope creation, is often rushed, but it does usually have the input of experts. It is usually full of intent and purpose for its function. It is usually a structured process. It is something that those involved understand needs to be done well and thoroughly. It usually enjoys some degree of care and planning and only has a limited number of people, the required number of people, involved in its creation. So it has some factors that should make it a slightly safer, more likely outcome. But the ongoing scope problem, scope failure, scope interpretation, it's also often rushed. People who are working within the project often are very quick to interpret what they see as what's required from the scope, and they rush to get on with whatever it is they, need, they think they need to do. So the individual or the scope for individual, sorry, the possibility, keep the scope word to what it means, the possibility of individual interpretation is as wide and as varied and as individual as the actual workers themselves. So scope interpretation does suffer from opinion. It suffers from the possibility that someone might have a slightly different view, slightly different interpretation, slightly different understanding, or slightly different intention of how they are going to deliver or work on or do what the scope expects them to do. So often, the highest risk to scope failure is usually in the execution of the scope. There is usually more opportunity for scope problems to arise during the execution of the project than to have arisen in the beginning and the creation of the scope. So what this means then, as a project leader, our scope obligations do not end with creating the scope. Indeed, the opposite. Our scope obligations are only just beginning. Because as project leader, we are ultimately responsible for not the creation of a good scope, but the interpretation of that scope by all of those who must work with it to create results. So we have to use the scope as a core tool for alignment in understanding. And in this role, to do this role, it has to be complete, it has to be concise, and it has to be clear. And any interpretation of those three factors have to be tested, have to be measured, and have to be adjusted. And when we are doing things such as setting up our report structure for our project, it is often with this intention in mind for us to be able to measure, test, and understand how well is the scope statements being 
interpreted and acted upon by all of those involved? And do we need to make any ongoing adjustments to clarify and fix or address any possible or existing issues with scope interpretation? So this is often a large part of what our monitoring processes are all about. But as a word back to integration that we've just talked about previously, a leader's role is also to ensure that this recomposition of the components of our projects all happen in a way that is integrated, where each component adequately integrates with all of its other components as it needs to. So it's the disparate activities where components or activities in our scope might be being performed by different people who aren't necessarily totally aware or totally interested in how their little piece of work is going to connect to some other piece of work. That is entirely a leadership function to ensure that that takes place, even if it's a delegated function. It is still something that project leadership must ensure happens in the right way. But scope has another purpose that other purpose to it as well, which we've already alluded to, which is in the management of the expectations of the beneficiaries of our project, those who will make use of what the project is creating. So scope is sometimes used to define what is being done for the benefit of the stakeholders. And sometimes stakeholders confuse this, confuse what is going to be achieved with what is being done. There is often a disconnect in the minds of stakeholders to see the relationship between one parcel, one small component of work that might be highly visible to them, and the larger integrated comprehensive result that that small piece of work is a part of, and the benefits that that larger result might yield. And this understanding of cause and effect, the fact that these individual pieces of scope as they're being done will combined together to create this accumulated greater result. This isn't always visible to all stakeholders with equal clarity and understanding. And this is the role and part of the function of project leadership to ensure that interpretation of scope to the benefactors or the beneficiaries is just as clear and just as effective. This is where we are using scope as a part of our expectation management strategy. Now, that is not to say that it is the entirety of our expectation management because expectation management also deals a lot with the benefits statement, the project goals, the project charter. All of these things also play a role in expectation management. But often the most visible are the scope-based activities. Now, there's a big difference, an important difference between scope management and expectation management. Scope management is managing the actual results, the outcomes or the activity of the project. Whereas expectation management is keeping people's view or their expectations of what is happening closely aligned with those actual results. This means that as scope activity evolves, as changes occur, expectation management also evolves. One of the more common uh, issues with expectation management can occur where change management has triggered or caused an approved change in scope where activities are being done 
where some other stakeholder might be unaware of that change and that change management, and they're expecting something different to happen than what actually takes place in the current most up-to-date scope. So changes in scope must be reflected in changes to expectations. This is more than just a management issue. This is about when we are leading change, it means we must adhere to sound principles of change management, but complete principles of change management. It's not just about getting the forms right. It's not about getting the paperwork right for change management. And in this, we look at a five-step process that project leaders should consider about how they will approach or how they will deal with any change to ensure that it supports the scope, that it remains integrated, and that it meets and manages expectations. Now, the first of these five steps is to analyze. That is to fully understand the change, the purpose of the change, the outcomes of the change, and the consequences of any other aspect of our project, the integrated effect of any one change on our project. The second is to confirm, to clarify with all stakeholders what the change is and get alignment on that change, on its purpose, on its outcome, on its consequences, so that everyone is clear on the implications of this change. The third is to ensure that it is approved. So to approve is to follow any formal process for authorized approval of the change. Fourth is to record. Update the plans, update the documents, update the scope. Update all functionally used documents to reflect that change. And the fifth is to share that, to share that information. Make sure that all of those who need to know about that change do know about the change. And it's not just about making sure that those who are delivering the scope and working on the scope know about it. It's also about all of those who are going to have high visibility to that work and effort. They also need to know what that change is and have that information shared. So it includes expectations of those beneficiaries. So when we work with our scope as a project leader, we will likely do so on a daily basis throughout the life of the project. It can and should be one of our most useful tools for project success. But it can also be one of our most dangerous problems if we let it get out of our control. This is the end of Lecture 6b. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6c of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Brendan Birchmore and we're going to take a look at project fundamentals of time and cost from a leadership perspective. Now, time and cost are often intertwined in many ways. We've all heard the saying, time is money. But we look at them together as a pair of constraints. Time does have one confusing element of it that we need to be careful of. Outside of projects, time can often have two different dynamics or two different sources of measurement. Labor or manpower is often measured in terms of time or man hours, for example. But in project management, 
more appropriate, the more correct measurement that we're talking about is elapsed time. We're talking about the passage of time, the hours of the clock. And this resource is finite. It never stops eroding. It's always ticking down. And we have all the time there is and not any more. But as each hour can only be spent once, so too each dollar can only be spent once. There's no try again with either of these resources. When we look at some of the other constraints of quality, scope, etc., we have choices, we have flexibility. But when the hour is gone or the dollar is gone, we have to get a new one of each. Now, in the human condition, we typically become more focused on either time and cost or time and money, the less of which we have. So as we have an initial amount and it gradually erodes, as it erodes, our interest in tracking it naturally increases. And the reverse of this is actually a potential problem in project management because the surplus creates this haze of disinterest. In the early stages of a project where we have all of the time and all of the money, we are generally less focused on exactly how much we have and exactly how much is being spent. This principle of human nature is something that project leadership needs to fight against. It's something we can't allow to take part in our thinking. We need to be careful of every hour and every dollar just as much from the first expenditure from the last. One of the biggest reasons and causes of blowouts in both schedule and budget come from this single principle of being insufficiently focused on it in the early stages and too late when we become adequately focused on it in the dying stages. This is especially important from a leadership point of view, knowing that many of the other people involved in our project, the mere mortals perhaps, are going to be thinking about it within the limitations and constraints of the human thinking that we've just talked about. At all points through our project, what these two constraints require of us is an awareness of the need for action, or the potential need for action. And if a need for action is identified, then a decision about what action must be taken. So it's an involvement in the decision-making. This is uh, key to leadership around these two constraints. Because of the principles we just talked about, taking action proactively in the early stages of a project can actually be more important and more significant because better decisions and improved decisions in the early stages can be leveraged, whereas missing the opportunity for those decisions and being forced to take harsher decisions later can result in increased costs and more time overruns. So the idea of taking action begins with an analysis and any analysis is going to be dependent upon the reporting that supports it. So the reporting regime and the reporting structure about what is going on with the expenditure of time and the expenditure of cost means that it's going to be feeding back into a decision-making analysis of what action needs to be taken. Typically, that decision-making will lead to a decision about some kind of change. And once the action becomes about making a change, 
then things get a little more interesting. There are many changes that might be implemented or might be considered when the constraints of time and cost are under threat. We might, for example, change the plan. We might change the scope of work and what we're actually doing. We might change the schedule in some way, the timing of events. We might change the resources that are allocated. Typically more, but possibly fewer resources. We might instead change the expectations about what is going to be delivered. We might change the method by which we are delivering. We might change the people that are involved in the delivery. Or we might change the quality or the standard to which that delivery is being reached. But when we're facing a report or information that tells us that some action is required, something with the plan has gone wrong, the important decision is about what happens next, not so much about what has already happened. And this is where a lot of project management can lose focus on the important by dealing too much with what has gone wrong, why has it gone wrong, what happened to my glorious plan, whose fault was it, etc. The really important thing is what happens next. What are we going to do about it? What action needs to be taken now? So the daily management of time and cost is usually about how to respond to these issues and problems and what action needs to be taken next. Now, these issues and problems are usually due to some kind of weakness in the plan or some kind of weakness in the execution or more appropriately, a gap between those two, between the execution and the plan. And often this gap is due to a gap in knowledge between at the knowledge at the planning stage and knowledge at the execution stage. Most commonly, this knowledge gap is defined in terms of an assumption. Now, an assumption, by definition, is an estimate that we relied upon in the making of a decision. So an assumption, when it is affecting our project, is an estimate that we haven't fully relied upon. So in some ways, the ongoing daily management of time and cost is actually the management of assumptions and how these assumptions are influencing or creating a gap between plan and outcome. But we also have said previously that each assumption is, by definition, also a risk. So shouldn't we be dealing with this in terms of risk management? Well, perhaps yes and no, because we could also say that everything a project manager or project leader does is, in fact, risk management. It's either in the prevention and avoidance of risk or the dealing with risk. It's all in about how we deal with that risk and the proactive hunt for and dealing with assumptions by proactively making decisions about what action needs to be taken is a form of risk management which means that according to many the managing of assumptions is a primary skill of a project manager so what do we do about these assumptions well, there's many little things that we can do, but there are some big ones that are worth discussing. Firstly, 
we need to identify the assumption. This is a key item, and it's often the hardest thing to do. Identifying an assumption means that we are recognizing a weakness in the estimate chain. One of the things that happens in the human mind, the reason assumptions create, is because we don't like to feel ignorant. We don't like to be knowingly ignorant of something. We like to resolve gaps in our knowledge and understanding. And for the most part, where possible, we try to fill that gap with fact. But if we can't, or if that's too difficult, we will typically satisfy our mind's desire for completion by substituting an assumption. And this is a normal human trait that we all suffer from. So to reverse that trend, to deliberately step aside from the assumption and acknowledge and accept that the comfortable knowledge that we've been operating with includes things that are fundamentally flawed is often challenging psychologically for people to do. But it is something that separates project leaders from other people. It is an internal psychological skill that we need to apply. So once we've identified that an assumption exists and is relevant, we then assess that assumption. And that's a broad analysis of knowing how likely is that assumption to have an impact on our project. What kind of impact might it have? What will it have an impact on? It's the how big and how bad kind of assessment. It's a prioritization, but it's also an assessment to help us decide what level of resource we should be allocating to addressing that assumption. And the answer might be zero. We might decide that the assumption is of sufficiently weak in consequence or in potential consequence that it doesn't deserve to be acted upon. Which brings us to the third point, which is to address the assumption. So we can address it in a couple of ways. We, it's by degrees. We might decide that an assumption requires no immediate investment of effort, but we still need to make sure that it has been recorded and that it is appropriately monitored to ensure that it doesn't have some further impact in the future. But we might also decide that it does need some sort of corrective action. We might need to resolve it fully, or at least partially. So we might need to clarify the assumption, confirm what the truth of it is, find the facts, or make the estimate underneath it more accurate to remove or reduce the impact of the assumption. But when we're dealing with finite resources, like time and money, dealing with the daily challenges of what action to take will mean that many of our decisions will be about setting priorities. Indeed, shortfalls of time and cost will often begin with a prioritization process. Even before we've decided that we need to get more time or get more funds, we first need to be clear on our prioritization of what is going to happen right now with the funds available until those other changes are brought into effect. This is most, specific, most especially a leadership function, as only with the full understanding of project integration and the broad and vast interdependence of all of the consequences and repercussions 
of changing priorities. Only with that can effective prioritization decisions be made. There are some simple prioritization techniques which put the various options into different categories, which assesses them based on how important they are, whether they are something that we should do, must do, optional to do, or don't need to do, and how time critical they are, as in when do we need to do it, how time critical, must it be done now, can we have some slippage, or is it entirely flexible? These are assessing the two criteria of time and cost, or cost and time, in the sequence that we just presented them. Because to do or not to do is a question of to invest or not to invest. And when to do it is a question of at what point in the schedule do we allocate our precious resource of time. But when things do go wrong, when time or cost is threatened for whatever reason, we are then in a contingency mode. And a contingency is a separate actionable plan B in the event of a failure of plan A. It's risk activated, but it's constructed based on the specifics of the constraint shortfalls of cost and time that we are dealing with. Though not all contingencies are of this type, but other contingencies will be handled in the risk discussion in subsequent topics. This is the end of Lecture 6C. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6D of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Brenton Birchmore and this discussion is going to be about project quality. Quality in life in general is often thought about as something that is above average. But in project management, quality is about adequacy or suitability. And this terminology difference is bad enough in one sense, but when it's being used by stakeholders who are measuring the quality of our project, it can become significantly more difficult. Quality, being suitability, is different from grade. Grade is a comparative assessment of what one thing is compared to another. The grade of a construction resource might be grade A, grade B, grade 1, grade 2. This is a relative analysis of its quality compared to another of its type. This is unrelated to its fit for its use, its suitability for its purpose or its outcome. That is what project management calls quality. So keeping the distinction between grade and quality is important, not only within our project, but also in conversation with the stakeholders who are ultimately going to be measuring the quality of the project outcomes. Quality can be highly complex in its measurement and assessment. It can have many different parameters. Even individual components or pieces of work can have many different quality attributes that all need to reach certain standards. And these are not always fixed values. They're not always numerical in nature. They're usually and in fact are often not quantitative in nature. They're often difficult to measure. 
that are often measured by subjective assessment, and they're often quite variable in nature. So the way in which a project needs to manage quality can be extremely complex, and these complexities can make it difficult for the people involved to accurately apply the right kind of assessment to the right situation and to the right outcome. But overall, from a project context, quality can be the project attribute that will be measured most significantly in the long term. It can be the most lasting parameter of project success or indeed failure. Long after a project has concluded, not too many people will remember whether the project was a bit late or a bit over budget, but most of them will remember if it failed to deliver as promised. And that is the quality statement. The pursuit of quality has two distinct aspects to it in project management. The first aspect is what we think of as quality assurance. This is about how are we going to assure quality in all of the many activities that take part in our project. So this is about process. This is about prevention. This is about what are we going to do in terms of procedure, in terms of advanced decision making, in terms of anything that we need to try to put in place up front that will maximize our opportunity to effectively get it right the first time. It's about proactive investment to make sure that redo or reinvestment is as limited as possible. The other side of delivering quality is about quality control. And this is about ensuring that the quality standards are actually being met and identifying when and where they're not being met and determining and implementing whatever response is appropriate in order to ensure that quality is either fixed or the procedures to reach it to reach it are being fixed so this is the reactive side the response to quality issues or the detection of those issues and it's often more involved with the risk side of the equation or the mitigation of quality-based risk. But the two feed into each other. Quality assurance being our preventative plan to make sure will determine what kind of quality control needs to be in place or needs to be created in order to ensure that we, the decision makers, are notified when something isn't reaching its target. And conversely, Quality control, the reactive response to the information that says something's out of order here, might then feed back into quality assurance and might change the quality assurance to say, well, if we're seeing these quality errors occur on a regular basis, perhaps our preventative quality assurance needs to change, needs to be more robust or needs to be different in order to minimize these constant problems. But unlike some of the other competing constraints that projects face. Quality can be a make or break for project success. Some projects or some components within a project have extremely strict quality requirements that cannot be avoided and cannot be denied. For example, a bridge that might be built to carry heavy vehicles off from other roads, it might not meet quality standards if the lanes are too narrow for those trucks to drive at normal speeds. 
It's not ideal, but it's not necessarily a disaster. However, if that same bridge was unable to support the weight of those trucks in the first place, well, that's a different matter. So one of the most significant aspects of quality that determines how we're going to handle it in a complete sense throughout the project is based on the nature of the project objectives and how those objectives are defined. And this is because some projects define their objectives based on quantifiable specifications. And building a bridge is a good example of this. In the example we just discussed, a bridge would have a load-bearing specification, which would not be avoidable by the bridge constructors. Other projects, however, cannot be so clearly defined in the description of quality in their outcome. And these are instead projects where the outcome is intended to be fit for a given purpose. And its measurement of quality is about whether or not it is indeed fit for that purpose. And these two different types of project quality design have some very different approaches to how we meet those quality requirements. In the first example, it all comes down to those specifications. It comes down to how are they determined, how are they managed, and how are they met over the life of the project. In the second case, it comes down to the purpose. How is that purpose defined? How is it interpreted? And how is it expected? And how are those expectations managed? Now, when we look at the differences between these two different types of projects, and we look at them broadly because you're going to have situations in many projects where you have a bit of each. You have some components that can be built to specification. And when those are relevant, you might choose to do that. And others that have components that are built fit for purpose. But when looking at the two from a holistic project sense, the five main questions that we need to look at and the answers as to what do we do and how do we deal with it, depending on whether it's to specification or fit for purpose, are outlined as follows. The first question is, what drives the quality standards? In the first case, it's the specifications themselves. In the second case, it is the definition of the purpose. Now, we know specifications can tend to be fairly explicit, fairly clear and concise. A purpose generally is not so, but the more precise we can make it, the less ambiguous we can make it, the more clear and concise we can make it, the more effective it will be, not only in us meeting the quality standards overall, but in our ability to get agreement from the various stakeholders that we have, in fact, met those purpose quality requirements. The second question is, what's the main threat to quality in these projects? In the first case, it is generally changes to the specifications. Those changes need to be done thoroughly. They need to be done by the relevant and appropriate experts. They need to be formally approved. And in the second case, the threat to quality is the accuracy of the purpose. What tends to happen is that the purpose is designed initially as what the decision makers or the stakeholders think that the project purpose should be. And over the life of the project execution, that 
accuracy of what the purpose of what the project really should be delivering does often evolve. And that, in a fit-for-purpose project, is the main threat to our ability to achieve quality because the goalposts get moved. Question three, what stakeholder engagement methods are most useful? In the first case, it's about consultation with stakeholders prior to the specifications. Once the specifications are set, any consultation with the stakeholders after that point is, whilst not necessarily irrelevant and not entirely too late, it is very problematic and is something to be avoided. It is difficult because subsequent consultation that results in a change to the specifications means going back through all of the difficult challenges to formally adjust the specifications. In the second case, in a fit for purpose, it is stakeholder buy-in and support for the purpose that we need. Because exactly how the project delivers the quality of that purpose might be variable. Different stakeholders will have different interpretations of exactly what is meant by that purpose and by the scope and by the outcomes of our project. So their buy-in and support for the project, their investment in the outcomes of the project is a more useful and important engagement method in a fit-for-purpose project. Point number four, what project documents do we tend to fall back on the most? In the first case, specifications projects, we tend to fall back to the scope document. The work and only the work that has been determined is what is needed to meet those specifications. There is usually less leeway in that analysis. The specifications are set, and usually it's fairly clear what work is going to be needed to meet those specifications, and that is outlined in the scope. And so the scope is our fallback document where we can confront challenges to quality that says our scope demands that this is what we must do. In the second case, in a fit-for-purpose project, it's the project charter that we fall back on. The charter is the authorized statement and definition of what we're really trying to do. And this is how we can combat this growing evolution of the purpose that might change in the minds of stakeholders through the life of the project. It all comes back to what was officially, formally approved at the beginning of our project, and that is defined in the charter. And lastly, point five, what is the most likely cause of quality concern in the long term? In the first case, it is faults or errors in the specifications. Our biggest, most likely cause of concern will typically be errors that might exist in the specifications of our project, in a built-to-spec kind of project. In the second case, in a fit-for-purpose project, the most likely cause of quality concern will come from faults, errors, or misalignment in the expectations of the stakeholders. So we can see that there are some very different approaches needed to different aspects of our project. And when projects have a bit of each of these parameters, it can be quite difficult to have a uniform strategy of how we manage quality and how we deliver quality for our project overall. But the decisions that we need to make to manage quality are often related to how we avoid that quality issue 
becoming a risk of some kind. And these risk-related quality concerns include whether we can correct something with a lesser investment or whether we have to redo something with a complete replacement, a more involved or more thorough, a more full investment to redo from scratch in some way. And knowing and understanding what aspects of our project need to be redone and what are things that can likely be corrected is important in our risk mitigation strategy from quality. Because if we have aspects of our project that we know if they are faulty, we'll have to redo them and the large amount of cost and wastage that might result from that will mean that our quality assurance, the preventative measures of making sure quality is is met, are going to be slightly different and perhaps more strict and our quality control of assessment is going to be perhaps more regular, more intense, more rigorous. Compared to those aspects of our project where we know that if we do get something a little bit wrong, then a little bit of paint and polish on the top might be able to fix it. This leads to the other big decision about meeting quality, which is the focus on either prevention or correction. This is a question of how much can we and should we invest in the quality assurance of preventing quality issues, preventing quality risks, and how much should we or can we invest in quality control and the correction and the fixing of quality later. Ultimately, the decisions that we do make regarding quality for our project might be the most important ones for the entire project and its ultimate success. This is the end of Lecture 6D. Hello and welcome to Lecture 6E of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Britton Birchmore and we're going to have a look at the specifics of project reporting. Now, this is not about the mechanics of different types of reports or <clears throat> the kinds of information that they yield, etc. This is about reporting as a concept in the human mind and in the project world. It's about why we report, the cause and effect of reporting, rather than how we go about reporting. Now, in practical terms, there are a number of different kinds of tools, techniques, and methods of providing and presenting information in ways that we call reporting. But in more simplistic or generic terms, reporting is simply the transfer of knowledge and information in a useful context, usually from someone who knows or works with that information, presenting it to someone who doesn't necessarily work with it and have it accessed on an ongoing basis, but who must then use that information in order to make decisions. Now, in a lot of projects, reports are wondrous things. They're full of vast and often pointless data that serves no obvious function and yet must be diligently produced with the utmost care for accuracy and timeliness. But seriously, why do we create reports. Let's look at some of the traditional reasons that often occur in project management. One is as a demonstration of effort. Our reporting says we are doing stuff. The reports prove it. It's a justification process. And in this situation, it doesn't really matter what's in the report 
as long as it's full. It's generally intended to deceive. It's often complex for the sake of being complex. It's often complex to the point of not wanting to be understood. Because if it is understood, it might yield some weaknesses in what actually isn't going on. Because it's trying to suggest that things are happening. Often used to get interested senior management off our back so that we can get on with doing our job. These kind of reports are focused on activity. They're focused on work. They're fo focused on doing things. Not so much focused on why is happening or how things are happening. A second reason is for the illusion of control. This type of reporting is usually asked for by someone who believes that through the creation of reporting, their team must be achieving something. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to write it in the report. And they wouldn't be game to put something in the report that they weren't actually doing. So although I'm not going to check it, uh, I'm going to be confident that everything's under control. These kinds of reportings are full of self-satisfied illusions about how well things are going and why the team members don't need any interference in what they're about. This sort of report is about managing upwards, usually at both levels. It's often about managing upwards from the project manager up to the executive level about see how many reports my team is making, clearly everything's on track. And it's also about the team reporting up to project management saying, see how busy we are, see how many good things we're doing, clearly everything's under control. Another kind of reporting cause is the steaming piles of automated data. These are the kind of reports that we make simply because we can. These these reports are often vast, uh, they're full, they're complex, and they're automated. Which means they're built from an output rather than built for a consequence. They're built because a particular system can produce them rather than for any particular need that they might fulfill. They're usually easier to create because they're automated, but usually harder to use. It comes from the idea of saying, let's write the biggest and most complex reports we can so that if anyone wants to know anything at all, well, it'll be in there somewhere. These are reports without a purpose, like rebels without a cause. And it's a good thing that they're easy to create because they're generally not as useful. So if I've spoken negatively about some of the traditional reasons for reporting that we might encounter in the project workspace, what are the good reasons for reporting? Well, fundamentally, there is typically only one good reason for reporting of any kind, and that is to serve decisions. But sometimes it's decisions that we don't have to make just yet, or sometimes even decisions that we don't know yet that we're going to need to make them. So if we're creating reporting to service decisions we don't even know about, is this theoretical reporting? Well, not really. We're still reporting on the decisions that we do know about. And usually the departure to also report for decisions that we discover along the way is not too different from what we're already reporting on. So in this sense, the path to effective reporting is firstly to identify the decisions that need to be made for which reporting is going to support. In this context, there's usually three types of decisions that we'll take into account. These are planned decisions, expected decisions, and interrupt decisions. 
Planned decisions are the easy ones. These are the ones that we know we have to make. We know usually when we have to make it so that we can plan to make that decision at that time. And we usually know what sort of things we will need to make that decision with so we can plan to have that kind of information and plan to have that kind of reporting available at that time. We can plan most things about the decision and what it needs. Expected decisions are decisions that we know we might or probably need to make. We might know in more broad terms what that decision will involve or what it will need. We don't have that information right now, but we know what kind of information it will probably need. And we know roughly in what time frame it might happen, or at least in what phase of the project it might need to happen. So we can build some expectations around what might need to happen in order to service that kind of decision. But the third type of decisions are the interrupt decisions. These are the unexpected decisions, the ones we didn't know about, weren't ready for, and usually we have to make them now in order to advance and move on in the next stage of whatever it is that involves. Now, our planned decisions and our expected decisions are usually the easy ones, and they should be the basis for all of our level one reporting. They should be the purpose for which the majority of our reporting will be created in our project. These decisions define most of what our reporting is intended to do, and therefore what that reporting is intended to show and how it is intended to inform. But the level two reporting is meant to handle the interrupt decisions. These are usually the decisions that come from an awareness that something is not right and needs to be addressed. So they are triggered, usually, by some other kind of reporting activity. They are triggered by a decision that says, well, do we have to do something different here, or is everything going according to plan? And if the answer is, yes, we have to do something different, the next question is, what is that different thing we have to do? That's the interrupt decision. So it's obviously closely linked to the information that helped us understand in the first place that a new decision was required. So for example, a monitoring decision can be planned. We can check each week our performance against the plan using appropriate reporting. And we can decide with the help of those reports whether or not we might need to take some extraordinary action as a result of some variation. That extraordinary action usually begins with an interrupt decision. So we may need to make a decision about how we need to act in that situation that we didn't entirely predict. How well we can utilize the reporting that's there will depend on the degree of flexibility that we've put into that reporting. This is why the kind of reporting that we use to generate monitoring information, to check against status and to check against expectations, is the kind of reporting that benefits from being more flexible in nature. It benefits from being the kind of reporting that allows us to tweak the dials and expand on the degree of detail or the depth to which the reporting is currently functioning so that we can get that extra bit of information that we need to support the interrupt decision. But an interrupt decision can also create the need for something additional, some extra information, some additional kind of reporting. Now, the key here is to ensure that any extra work or effort that's required to produce extra reporting is only to the extent needed that it must support that interrupt decision. 
For example, simply tripling the size of a report because you need a bit more detail isn't necessarily appropriate or a good use of resources, when zeroing in on some particular information might not only be more efficient, but more valuable to the decision. But interrupt decisions can also cause a degree of panic or negative reaction. And one way that people can sometimes trick themselves into feeling more in control is to overreact with the reporting demands. Something's gone wrong, there's an urgent decision required, quick, let's get lots and lots of information so that we suddenly feel a little better and that we're more in control. This is not quite true. It's the particular information that we need for our decision making that is what's most important, and that is the number one first step. Determine what information truly is needed for the decision and get that information. Then your sense of increased control over the situation will be valid. So how do we create a close relationship between the decisions that need to be made and the reporting needed to support those decisions? Typically, the best way to do it is a collaboration between those that use and leverage the reports and those who create the reports. So a discussion and collaboration, which begins with the decision purpose and is contributed to by those who work with the reported data and information, can then create some reporting possibilities that might otherwise have been missed. Simply sharing with the team and with the reporting personnel what the purpose of this information is for and how it's going to be utilized is an important step to getting their contribution to in what way and how the reporting might be done in such a way that it's even more effective to support those decisions. It also creates motivation and buy-in. As those who are involved in generating reports and creating reporting, they know why that's re that reporting is needed, and they know to what extent it is needed. And there is a validation for the effort required to produce and the flow of information. This also lends itself to the relevant accuracy of ongoing reporting. A lot of reports do tend to lose their accuracy and lose their attention to detail as time goes on, as the purpose of that report, if it was ever known originally, often fades and is forgotten. So the reason to be accurate and detailed is often lost. But knowing exactly where the accuracy and where the detail is needed and why it's needed and knowing where it isn't needed is a key to conserving the reporting efforts within the team. So reporting for leadership is about outcomes and objectives that come from the decisions we make. It's about results, not so much about activity. It might report about activity, but it's meant for the purpose of deciding to achieve the results. So reporting for decision-making supports this paradigm. It allows a project leader to get the most out of the reporting that they truly need to ensure that that reporting is delivered with motivation and with intent, and not just initially, but throughout the entire life of the project. It avoids wasted reporting and the time needed to create it. It limits the potential for misleading illusions as to who has what control over things. And it provides the most true and accurate story of what is really going on. Reporting for management, in contrast, is a different thing. Management-based reporting is reporting for the assumption of what that reporting might do. The assumption that reporting means a certain amount of effort, that it means a certain amount of accuracy, that it therefore means a certain amount of success. 
and the assumption that these meanings can be derived from that kind of reporting. So a manager might ask for reports for reasons other than the decisions that they intend to use them for, or even in the absence of any decisions that they need to use them for. The reports will therefore get created to serve other purposes, i.e. to serve the purposes of giving an illusion. And if a report is to create an illusion, then how accurate do we really expect the details of those reports to be? Or for the purpose of demonstrating effort. And the demonstration of effort does not directly lead to the accomplishment of success. So the key point here is that reports will evolve to fulfill their dominant purpose. The question is, what purpose? We need to be clear and we need to be fair about what the purpose is. Because if we're not, if as a project leader we are not clear on the purpose of all reporting, then it won't be our purpose that those reports will evolve to fulfill. They will instead evolve to fulfill someone else's purpose. And if that someone else doesn't know and understand and appreciate what our purpose is for those reports, then those reports will evolve to fulfill their purpose. And their purpose might simply be to spend as little effort on them as possible. Now, we should make a special mention on the kind of reporting that we don't plan to leverage and make use of or read all of the time. And in some cases, this can be a majority of reporting and the flow of information. We need to be honest about what we are and are not leveraging in terms of information. We need to be honest about levels of reporting. Reporting that we do look at on a regular basis will be level one reporting. Reporting that we look at to look for exceptions that occasionally get checked, that might be level two reporting. And a report that is looking for specific information to support a specific decision that we need to make right now is level three reporting. We need to be prepared to work with summaries, summaries that can be expanded upon as and when they are needed. And we need to be clear on how we determine when that expansion is appropriate. But we need to be wary of the subjective summary. By summaries, I don't mean somebody's opinion as to whether or not things are on track. Trending and exception reports can be summaries, but they must be based on real information, on real data. So that we can delve into that data and information when an exception appears that we might need to decide upon. Ultimately, a project leader's relationship with reporting and the relationships that can be created between the team and their reporting strategy, this will underpin that leader's ability to make good and timely decisions in their project. It's one of the most tangible and most obvious ways that we can distinguish between a project manager and a project leader. One is managing the process and the resources. The other is leading the team for outcomes. This is the end of Lecture 6E.